We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge apply. Ctmobile.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friend at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. And welcome back to hour number two of Hardline on this beautiful Sunday. Really, I hope you're enjoying the balmy temperatures. Talk about bonus days, eh? It's a, it's a great day to talk politics as always, and uh, it's wonderful to look out the window and see the sun shining and feel those uh, really lovely temperatures here. It's Brenda Alacy. Joe Beamer is with me, of course, here on Hardline. And in our first hour, we talked with Buffalo State Professor Peter Yakabuchi from the Political Science Department, and Carol Calabri is kind enough to join us as well uh, in that last hour. And we've asked Carol to hang on for a little while to take your calls and discuss some of the other issues of the day. And uh, just a reminder, I mentioned at, uh, at the beginning of the show that we will be rebroadcasting this particular show from 2 to 4 today. So if you missed any of it or if you want to go back and hear what the professor had to say or the earlier discussion with Carol, please feel free to tune back in from 2 until 4. And, of course, we will be uh, up on the podcast at radio.com if you want to listen to Hardline at your leisure. So, Carol, thank you for holding on. And we were talking about, you had mentioned about Stacey Abrams and Georgia. And I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to ask you about her efforts in this campaign, how she really seemed to galvanize the black community in Georgia. Do you think that she played that key of a role in helping Georgia go for Biden? I do. Uh, from what I've read, very good article and about her she lost the governor's race uh she took it upon herself to essentially put together a grassroots campaign in as many counties as possible in georgia to identify democrat voters and get them registered and then get them turned out to the polls so yeah i think that she was one of the factors that has turned uh, georgia now a purple state uh, Carol, of course, our text board is open, the Volkswagen of Orchard Park text board at 716-803-0930. And there's a question about the electoral votes. Uh, the texter asks, why does California have so many electoral votes? I thought it was for smaller states to have more power. And Carol, if I remember correctly, California has 55 votes. Uh, is that something that you think, uh, to the caller's point, is sort of creates an imbalance of power? No, it's based on how many congressional seats you have. So the more population you have, the more congressional seats you have, therefore the more electoral votes you have. So that's how it's always been. And certainly larger states have more votes, uh, but smaller states you know, can also play a role. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I, used, I, I said this to Tom Bowerly the other day. For people who say they want to do away with the Electoral College and just have a popular vote for president, well, you know, if you look around the world at other democracies, a, a good number of them don't elect their chief executive by popular vote. Uh, prime ministers, like in Canada and England, New Zealand, Australia, Germany, they're not elected by popular vote. Their parties 
if their party wins a majority in their parliament, then the leader of the party becomes the prime minister. Um, and so there's, you know, there's lots of democracies that, that use other systems than popular vote. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind, if you had just a popular vote, you're essentially turning over to three states the choice of, of the chief executive president. You're, you're going to have New York, Illinois, and California. Uh, driving the vote for president. Now, take a look at those three states, and we'll drive those states as well. In New York, it's obviously New York City. In Illinois, it's Chicago. And in California, it's L.A. and San Francisco. Take a look at who the people of those cities have elected to be their chief executives. you got some of the worst mayors in, in the country, Bill de Blasio, Lori Lightfoot in Chicago, uh, London Bond and Wayne Garcetti in, uh, in L.A. and San Francisco. So I ask the question, you know, given that they, the people of those cities have seen fit to elect leftist progressives who then enacted policies from the left that have essentially destroyed those once great cities, are you comfortable turning the keys over to those same voters to elect your chief executive president of the United States? Carl, I want to talk about the polls real quick before we get back to calls, Um, you know, because a lot of people are saying the polls were off again for the second straight year. So this is a a, a double ended question. What's the future of political polls uh, that we are so used to seeing around election time? And do you think showing polls like that suppress the vote at all? Oh, yeah. You know, I've I've looked at this question very deeply and there's no question, you know, there's one of two reasons why they have missed it two cycles in a row. First reason is they're just incompetent, okay? And after losing four years ago, they never changed their methodologies to be able to deal with a society now that relies more on, on cell phones and social media to communicate with each other than in the old days. So that, that's one reason, that, and that's, that would be the best. The, the worst would be that polls are ideologically driven and agenda-driven, meant to sway the narrative and to, to discourage people from supporting their candidate because why would you bother if, if your, your person is down 16, 18 points? Um, I'm convinced now that at least some of the major polling outlets, the ones done by media, NBC, CBS, ABC, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, I think they are fake polls. I think they are driven uh, by an agenda and they're they're there to do just what you said. They're there to suppress the vote of the candidate that they don't want. And it's as simple as looking at their methodology. Every poll I mentioned had Biden up by double digits, and every single poll I mentioned oversampled Democrats by double digits. So they're fake polls, just like there are fake stories in the media. There are fake polls. Not all of them. There are some good ones. But for the major media outlets, when they do polls, I, I am now convinced they're, they're there to drive the agenda, not to tell people what's really happening with the voters of this country. I don't know about you, Carol, but I think most people, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, take these polls very lightly now. They, they you know, with a grain of salt, if not a, a bucket of salt, I think that they've really undermined their credibility across the board. I think you're absolutely right. And uh, you know, it's the same with, <laughs> I, I look at any article written by the New York Times or the Washington Post the same way, Brenda. It's, it's essentially an editorial disguised as a news story. And so... I don't give them any credibility at all. There's other sources to get more um, fairer news and a, and a more accurate picture of what's really going on rather than the, the, the left agenda of the New York Times and the Washington Post and the polls that they generate during an election. They really- well, could, you, 
Carol, could you say the same though about OAN, Newsmax, uh, Fox to some degree? Do you see it that way as well on that side of the board? Yeah, I do. I do. And again, it's as simple as looking at their methodology. And, and the problem with polling is, you know, if polling was pure science, everybody would get the same result. You'd use the same methodology and you'd always be able to get the same result. Polls are driven by how you word the question, what your sample is, is an accurate sample. Uh, it's oftentimes driven by weighting. And weighting a vote means you, you assume what the turnout model will be. So if you take, let's, for example, say the 2008 or 2012 Obama races, where you had a much, much higher turnout of young people and African-Americans and, and Latinos, uh, if you assume that type of turnout, you weight your poll to reflect what you think is going to happen. And if you pick the wrong turnout model, uh, you're going to have a skewed poll. So that that's the problem with polling. You've got to be very careful of understanding that and looking at pollsters that respect those differences and don't try to skew a poll. And they're out there. They're out there. The other thing I recommend is if you're going to look at polls, look at the real clear political average of polls, not just like the NBC, uh, you know, Wall Street Journal poll. Don't, don't do that. Look at the real clear political average. And what they will do is take anywhere from six to ten polls in a given state and average them out. So at least you get rid of the outliers. And I think you get a, you get a more accurate picture. Carl, Brenda mentioned Fox News, OAN, and Newsmax. You know, this week, and, and actually for the last few months, uh, Fox News has been criticized by their base, which would be conservative viewers. Do you think OAN or Newsmax could mount some kind of challenge to the juggernaut that is Fox News? Yeah, I do. I really do. I think they've forgotten who their audience is. Aside from the three commentators that dominate the evening, that being uh, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, and Laura Ingram. Uh, I, I believe the rest of Fox News, I, I would put Brett Baer in there. I think he's very fair. His newscast at 630, I think, is what news used to be on the major outlets. Uh, but other than that, I, I think they have moved considerably to the left, and their audience has picked that up, and I, I think they're concerned about it. I know I am. Let's go back to the phone lines, guys. Uh, Lou has been patiently waiting in Amherst. Good morning, Lou. Thank you for holding on. Good morning. Good morning. Two questions. Number one. Why is there not more emphasis on Arizona, which was a Republican stronghold, I'm told, for many, many years, and there's only a 20,000-vote difference, and he's still gaining a little bit? What, what is the story of that? You take Arizona off the board, it's, it's, a, it's a new ballgame. Carl? Yeah, Arizona's interesting. As I said, uh, right now Trump is only behind two-tenths of a point. Um, as the votes come in, Biden's lead continues to shrink. It was at one time 40,000 votes. The last I looked this morning, it was down to 19,000, with 10% of the votes still not being counted. So they've, they've get, you know, the, the news networks have assigned it to Biden. Uh, you know, and, and of course, Fox was Fox called Arizona with like 8% of the vote in. Um, I, I watch it closely. It may not make a difference because of all, like I said, all the other hail mary passes that have to be completed but um arizona i think arizona is still in play well if he gets it great but it may not matter with pennsylvania looming out there we'll go down to uh we'll go down the throughway to rochester and talk with john welcome john you're on with carol calabrese hey hey brenda hey joe hey carol uh, you know it's amazing that trump was able to come this close and who knows he still could win i guess theoretically uh, with 95% negative media coverage, to me, that's that's what 
if he loses, that's a loss in the election. The other part, Carl, is these legal challenges and the, the voter fraud that's out there, the voter, uh, the election uh, manipulation by like Pennsylvania, etc. Uh, if he doesn't prevail with that, uh, well, I want to let you know the thing. Ninety percent. I read the Wall Street Journal. Ninety percent of there was ninety percent voter turnout in Wisconsin, which is uh, unbelievable uh, and maybe fraudulent to a certain extent. But even if he doesn't win these legal challenges, do you think uh, it, this these challenges will uncover voter fraud and help us in the future? Good question. You know. Voter fraud has always been part of American elections by both sides, especially in you know big city machines uh, that have gotten it down to a science over the uh, over the decades. Um, I, I, something happened in Wisconsin that concerned me. In uh, Milwaukee, Republican counters were sent home at 3 a.m. and were told there'd be no more counting. And after they left, uh, 100,000 or so ballots came in and were counted with no Republican eyes on the ballot. And I've always said. Every state should have laws that mandate that there's two sets of eyes on every ballot, a set of Republican eyes and a set of Democrat eyes, to make sure there's no shenanigans. We're not dealing with angels here uh, in terms of people, uh, you know, party activists and party workers. You have to assume that people will always try to find a loophole for either mischief or outright illegality. So uh, I think that the Trump, the Trump campaign, if they go to court on some of these state issues outside of the Pennsylvania one, which is, a, I think, a clear constitutional question, um, you know, I, I think they, they're going to have to present their evidence, um, with, you know, if they have it, to a court in order to make any headway. Carol, we're going to hit uh, the phone lines yet again. It's Diane in Buffalo this time. Hello, Diane. You're on Howard Line with Carol Calabrese. I was listening Saturday to a black station in Buffalo, and they were saying down south the reason they got so many blacks to vote Democratic is because they thought they were going to get that um, compensation, that retribution for slavery passed if they vote Democrat. So um, also, I voted for Trump, and I I had a mail-in um, ballot. I mailed it, mailed it, sent it in in the mailbox. Two and a half weeks before Election Day, and they haven't even counted it yet. So, you know, I'm kind of annoyed that if I would have known that they weren't going to count it on Election Day. But, you know, the reason I did the mail-in not only was for the um, corona. Um, the, I, I live in Buffalo, and um, the polling place that I go to, the last time we went... Some guy spit on my son. And so, I, you know, and this was way before um, Trump was president. So, you know, there is violence in Buffalo at the polling places. And so that's why I did the mail-in vote. Well, how, how do you know it hasn't been counted yet, Diane? Because they said they weren't going to count any of the mail because they were going to wait something like 13 days because of the military that live overseas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that generally takes a couple of weeks for the military ballots to come in. And they had something like 190,000 just in Erie County. And I I live in, you know, it's Democrat, but I'm a Republican. And I live in Buffalo. 
So this well, I mean, we certainly would never condone anybody spitting on somebody, especially a child. I mean, it's reprehensible behavior. Diane, thanks for the call. Thanks. Carol, uh, did you hear about any sort of problems at the polling places this year? I have not, no, especially in terms of violence, uh, and hopefully we won't. But to her other point, Brenda, about reparations for slavery, um, mm-hmm. Donald Trump apparently did better with African Americans this time. Than he did last time. He got eight percent of the African American vote in 2016, and there was there was indication that he might double that. Now I don't know yet; those numbers aren't out. Uh, but you know, the thought was if he got anything over 12 percent, it would be tough for the Democrats to win. So we'll have to see what the, that number comes in at. He did very well apparently with um, Hispanic Latino voters, upwards of close to 40 percent in Florida, almost 50 percent. But the question of reparations, Kamala Harris has called for reparations in the Senate. Um, and I believe, I may be wrong on this, my memory's a little faulty here, but this this unity document that um, was written after Biden got nominated, which was uh, put together primarily by uh, the uh, AOC and Sanders wing of the party, I believe that calls for, if not reparations, at least the commission to study it. Um, and so we'll have to see how that how that issue plays out. I think, you know, there are so many other things uh, on the agenda right now before we get into that that I hope that uh, that President Trump and, and President-elect Biden focus on. But, Carl, I wanted to talk to you about your earlier point about, you know, a lot of people were turned off by Trump's personality and his rather coarse way of conducting himself at times. And I, I think certainly that may have played into it. But I think the bigger issue was his bungling of the pandemic in the early days and and then just sort of dismissing it and say it would go away and it was going to go away after the election and it was going to be gone by Easter and and the the whole mask politicization. Uh, In my view, that's what lost him the election. Do you you agree or do you think there were too many other factors at play? Well, I, I think there was a huge factor, okay? I don't want to say it's the only factor, but it was a huge factor in that it, it allowed other things that bothered people about Trump to come out, as you just mentioned, Brenda. You know, he's an optimist at heart, and so he's always going to, you know, kind of take the, the glasses half full approach, and that may not have been the best approach on this. Uh, it may not have been the most realistic approach. Um, you know, early on, go back to April, when Trump was doing those daily briefings, and initially he would come out for, you know, 15 minutes and give kind of a broad overview, 20 minutes overview of what's going on, and then he would turn it over to Vice, Vice President Pence and the experts. And during that time he was doing that, his, his favorability went over 50%. And then as soon as it turned into a Donald Trump show, and he, he got off of that format and it became all Trump all the time, fighting with the media, bringing partisan politics into it, his numbers went back down to the mid-40s. That was a huge mistake. I believe if he would have kept up, the original format, he would have put the election away in April, but he took a different tack, and I think that that hurt him very much. Say, just look at the poll numbers. Uh, but you know, Trump had a mis- he had you know a mixed record on Corona, and I believe that if a Democrat were in office, they would have made some of the same mistakes because there was no playbook on this. Uh, all the experts were saying it was going to be that bad, including Dr. Fauci. Uh, you know, elected officials like Nancy Pelosi, our governor, were, uh, Bill de Blasio, were telling people it's not going to be that bad. Don't stop living your life. Come on down to Chinatown and participate. So people just didn't have the knowledge of what this disease was and how to deal with it. So he made mistakes. He also did some, some very good things. And by the way, if we get a vaccine, 
in the next month or so. Um, you know, it'll happen under a, a Biden presidency, but it will be because of Operation Warp Speed, which will may end up producing a vaccine in record time. And that that's Donald Trump's feather, not not anyone else's. I think that was the best thing he did about the the pandemic was Operation Warp Speed. Uh, but I think the fact that he did not meet with the uh, the committee uh, since June was very telling, too. Um, so I guess we can debate this till the end of time, Carl. <laughs> but there's, there's no doubt coronavirus and his handling of it was a big, big factor uh, in the election. Carl, let me ask you, 2024, uh, right now, obviously there's a lot of time, uh, who are the front runners to run on the Republican ticket? <laughs> well, let's start speculating. I think uh, Republicans have some rising stars. You saw them at the Republican convention. Nikki Haley comes to mind. Uh, Senator Tim Scott would be another one. Um, uh, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, who is term limited and will be out of, uh, out of the office soon. Um, Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, uh, Christy Noem, the governor of South Dakota. Uh, those are just some that come to mind immediately. But who knows? You know, maybe maybe Trump runs again and maybe one of his children run. Who knows? You know, there was my thought. I was going to ask you about Donald Trump Jr. He seems to have really uh, taken the mantle and, and run with it in many ways, much more so than his brother Eric or even uh, Ivanka. So uh, I would not be surprised to see a Trump name out there again. And, Carol, we really appreciate you taking the time to stay with us, uh, especially the extra time. Always great insight, and it's always nice to have a civil conversation with somebody if we don't always agree politically. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Brenda. Joe, I, I enjoy it as well. Thanks. Thank you, Carl. Coming up next, we will be talking with Mike Baggerman and Brendan Keeney about covering the election in 2020 and so much more. If you'd like to get on board, 803-0930. It is Hardline. We're back after this. And welcome back to Hardline here on News Radio 930 WBEN. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The final segment. If you missed anything, it'll be available on WBEN.com and replayed 2 to 4. Different afternoon lineup today. Meet the press as usual at noon at 1 o'clock. We will have ABC's This Week, followed by a replay of this show. So, sounds like a good afternoon, but I'll be watching the Bills game, Brenda. (laughs) I'll be right there with you, Joe. But, you know, I might uh, just tune the radio over to hear how we did. And I appreciate everybody calling in. It's been a very interesting show. I hope people have found it informative, too, and and somewhat entertaining. You know, there's a lot to discuss. And 
we, uh, we've gotten some good perspective from SUNY Buff State political science professor Peter Iacobucci and uh, our go-to political strategist and analyst Carl Calabrese and your phone calls as well. Joe, back to you, my friend. All right, and we have two guys that were, well, who have been following uh, the election, following uh, the candidates uh, locally for the last few months. So let's bring them in. We'll start with Brendan Keeney because we started Election Day with Brendan Keeney. He was at the election voting spots. And uh, Brendan, good morning. Good morning, Hardline crew. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Start off with how was it in line uh, six? I think you were there six in the morning. Uh, how did the lines look and what was the enthusiasm like at the polling sites? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to gauge the enthusiasm when it's six o'clock in the morning and everyone's. Exhausted. <laughs> um, but in, in terms of people being there, there were more than I expected. I got uh, to Unity Church on Delaware, uh, right across from Canisius High School. That was my polling site. I actually did a couple of you know live spots as you know and also voted um and i got there at about 5:50, and there was already a line and then by the time i did my live spot and got in line there were probably about 20 people ahead of me and then a few more shuffled in behind me so um i would say there was about 30 people there uh to start and by the time i had left i would say about 70 people or so had had gone through uh, Mike Baggerman is with us as well. Mike, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, my question for you, you are uh, obviously an anchor reporter here at WBEN, but also the assistant news director. So in terms of covering this election amid a pandemic, what sort of measures did you take in the news department? Uh, I guess the biggest measure, Brenda, was to expect the unexpected. And, you know, that's that's kind of a cliche when you hear that every year because you go into it thinking that, okay, there might be some surprises when it comes to who's going to beat who on a certain election. Take four years ago, for example, when uh, the president, despite, you know, losing in the polling numbers, actually beat Hillary Clinton in the Electoral College. But this one was unexpected in the sense of, we literally had no idea what to expect. Were candidates going to be declaring victory? Were candidates even going to be speaking to the media? And and the way that our election night set up was, it was, I, and I kind of joke with a bunch of uh, my uh, colleagues out there at other news outlets, but it felt like you were covering like a Buffalo Bills mid midweek press conference where they just bring in players to make a quick comment. It was the most low-key uh, I guess, unenthusiastic type of uh, election night in terms of the way that the respected uh, parties would celebrate it. They, in, in years past, have had big parties. You know, everybody's, uh, you know, there's music playing in the background. You, you, you see sometimes politicians out there kind of dancing to the beat. You got none of that this year. Everyone was in a room. They were separated. It was the most bizarre election night I can think I've ever covered. And, and we all miss the politicians dancing. Of course. <laughs> Which, by the way, one of the best uh, songs of the 80s, The Politics of Dancing, but that's for a different show. Uh, Brendan, you were at the Democrat headquarters, and what was the scene like there? Did anyone give a speech on election night? Yeah, I mean, the the way Mike described it was very much what happened at Democrat headquarters in Larkin Square. Uh, we didn't even see a politician until at least 9 p.m., and... They were brought. Uh, it, it was. I'm trying to think of the best way to describe. It, it was just bizarre. It was, You had politicians who were giving a speech that you couldn't really hear them because you had, you know, four 
local uh, reporters doing live hits. And so it was like the politicians were talking to nobody. They were brought out from behind a curtain uh, right to the podium. They did their quick little, you know, two, three-minute speech. Maybe a couple of them talked to uh, the press and, like, one-on-one interviews. I spoke with uh, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, with uh, now State Senator uh, Sean Ryan, but a lot of them just went right back behind the curtain, didn't make themselves available for interviews. Uh, It was just very, as Mike said, low-key. Each reporter had his own had his or her own table and put their huge set up there and it was just there was a lot of space a lot of silence and it was just a lot of waiting for a lot of the results to come in and when they did it was just like a couple minute speech from each one and they were on their way I guess this is really consistent, uh, guys, with uh, the, this most extraordinary year that we are living through with this pandemic and all the different ways our lives have been affected, even in these, you know, these political uh, candidates now coming out or speaking almost like the Wizard of Oz as they come out behind the curtain. Very, very strange indeed. Um, one of the tightest races, or what appeared to be not as tight as we thought it might be, was the Nate McMurray-Chris Jacobs race for NY27. Uh, Brendan uh, and uh, Mike, your thoughts about uh, McMurray not conceding at this point? I mean, I'll start off real quick. Um, Nate McMurray's been known to uh, want every last vote counted. He's he's been that way with uh, Chris Collins uh, a couple years ago. He was that way when he had the the special election earlier this summer. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. And I, I can't really say I, I blame him for wanting all of the votes counted. And it, and it turned out in the special election that he really closed the gap against uh, Chris Jacobs. Um, but there was some concern going into that race. I spoke with Carl Calabrese uh, earlier uh, this summer, right after the special election. There was concern that Republicans weren't going to vote mail-in, and that might hurt uh, Chris Jacobs, but it, it obviously didn't, and uh, it, it looks pretty good for him at this point. And I'll add on to that uh, from what Brendan had just said on the Republican side. Jacobs, you know, he declared victory on uh, on, on Tuesday night. He said that he was up by fifty six thousand vote, or he said that the absentee votes, because they're up by, I believe the figure was fifty six thousand, that they feel full confidence that they were ready to call the race. And also the Associated Press had called the race for Congressman Chris Jacobs as well. So he's going to be uh, going in for another term. And obviously, when you look at the McMurray race, you know, he's well within his right to have all the votes counted. And it looks like we're just not on par to see the exact same thing that we saw in June with the special primary. Jacobs with a huge lead on election night. McMurray will cut the deficit, but it just won't be enough once all the votes are tabulated. All right, this question is for both of you. Uh, we'll go with uh, Baggerman first this time. Um, you guys said, obviously, there weren't the crowds at the headquarters that you usually see, but with the people you talked to on election night, were they talking about anything else other than the the local races? Did anyone mention the presidential race when there was a state called? Anything like that? When I spoke with Carl Simith, the uh, Erie County Republicans chairman, I had asked him about the uh, presidential race. And, you know, he, he said that exactly what you'd expect. He expected that the president was going to win. But the main focus with this was strictly on the local races. Yes, everyone was talking about the presidential election because that's the one that everyone had been most focused on. And I'm sure uh, Jeremy Zellner had the full confidence that Joe Biden was going to win. I'll let Brendan speak to that a little bit more. Uh, but Simith, he had full confidence. Uh, Carl 
Carl Palladino came into the room. You know, he I overheard him talking to some people. He was saying that he was confident that the president was going to win. I mean, if you go to an election night coverage and you hear a Republican say, yeah, I don't think Trump's going to win, uh, then then you might be scratching your head and wondering why they're there in the first place. So nothing unexpected from the Republican side. Yeah, and from the Guys, uh, go ahead, Brendan. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Jeremy Zellner, who is the, the Democratic chair in Erie County, he wasn't there. He also serves as the Democratic elections commissioner in Erie County. So he was quite busy that night. Um, but you have to remember that, you know, Donald Trump had a lead and it looked pretty promising early on. So uh, there was definitely a an, an, atti- an attitude of, uh, of somberness, maybe. I don't want to say that. Um, but it definitely wasn't a high key, uh, you know, feeling at Democratic headquarters, especially early on. Um, but like Mike said, it was very much a focus on the local races. You know, here and there, uh, someone would come out and say, "Oh, Colorado was just uh, declared. Oh, you know, New York was just declared." Blah blah blah. Um, but really, it was a focus on the local races uh, and less so on the national stage. We know how quickly things change uh, in in the world of politics, especially in this very fluid situation. And just reading a report that uh, Rudy Giuliani, who serves as President Trump's personal attorney, uh, estimated that his team will have four or five lawsuits over alleged voter fraud in battleground states by the end of this week. And he said that Trump is right not to concede on Sunday. Uh, Giuliani was quoted as saying it really would be wrong for him at this point. It would be wrong for him to concede. There was strong evidence that this was an election that at least three or four states and possibly 10, it was stolen. In other words, it was based on false votes. Now, you can't let that election go into history without challenging that. That was what Judy, uh, Rudy Giuliani said uh, earlier today. So he claims that they may have enough evidence to change Pennsylvania. Uh, and Mike, as uh, as somebody in the newsroom day in and day out, and Brendan as well, uh, have you ever seen anything like this where things may be changing minute by minute? Uh, never so much on the scale that we're seeing right now. I mean, when you look at what Giuliani had said, and this is the first time I'm hearing of it from you, Brendan, is, you know, I'll say the exact same thing that I said when it comes to Nate McMurray, for example, is that, you know, the president, okay, he has his back against the wall and he wants to try to win this election every way he can. If he wants to go the legal route to do so, by all means, if he, he's well within his right to be able to do that. Now, whether or not a federal judge decides that the lawsuits, the various lawsuits that the Trump campaign is going to be uh, putting out has any merit, that's an entirely different story. Uh, but I mean, you have all, and, and there's the really popular video now of Rudy Giuliani saying, all the networks, all the networks. Well, you know, all the networks are saying that Biden is the projected winner because of the votes. Now, that could all change depending on what a federal judge decides to rule on it. Uh, but I mean, all things considered, the credible news outlets are saying that Biden is going to win it and Biden has won it. He's the projected winner. And we're going to continue to uh, report what we know, and that is that Joe Biden is the projected winner. But if things start to change and if a judge says that the president has an avenue to win, OK, then that's that's what the news is. That's what's going to happen. When you're out pounding the pavement, you know, covering stories and so forth uh, during such a contentious election season, have you come across anybody who calls you fake news overtly or who has challenged your ability to cover any of these stories that have been so hot in the local press, uh, not to mention the national press? 
all the time. It happens every yeah, it happens every now and then. Usually when you cover a protest, and it's funny because I I remember covering a protest that had uh, you know people on the left that were protesting. I've covered protests that people on the right, and they all scream fake news. And it's unfortunate that that happens because we want to try to do our best to report the news as accurately and in as much context as we can. Uh, unfortunately, it can be tough to do so, you know, in 45 seconds to a minute, 30 issues on complex issues. But listen, at the end of the day, people are going to believe whatever they want to do. I'm always going to try to do my job to the best of my ability, as well as all the other reporters in town. Everyone does their best. And is it always perfect? No, I'll be the first to admit it. There are times that there's small mistakes that people will seize on, and it's unfortunate. We always try to do our best, and we're going to continue to do so. And you were saying you get that all the time, Brendan? Yeah, um, all the time is a stretch. More, Mike was dead on. When, when you go to a protest, you can, almost expect, uh, you can almost expect to be called fake news or people tell you they don't even want you there and stuff like that. That has happened numerous times covering the protests. Uh, throughout the summer and even on into the fall. Um, but Mike's, Mike's spot on. I mean, there's really nothing we can do about it. We have to be there. We're not going to leave because someone tells us to leave or because someone says we're fake news. We have to be there. We're going to do our jobs to the best of our ability. And if, you know, our reporting rubs someone the wrong way, that's I, I, I get it. Um, but we're going to do our best and try to not be biased in, in what we cover and what we report. We are expecting an announcement from Governor Cuomo tomorrow, and I understand that Kathy Hochul might be making an announcement later today. Uh, what, uh, Mike, as Assistant News Director, what do you have planned for this week, and what do you anticipate Cuomo talking about? I guess the obvious answer, uh, I would think, would be uh, a COVID spike, but I'm hoping there's not a total shutdown again. Uh, any insight yeah, as to what it might be about? We don't have any direct insight to what the governor says, but I mean, we, we do know it's going to be addressing the high coronavirus numbers in Erie County. There were about just under 400 uh, new cases that were reported on Friday, and this is the most cases of COVID-19 in a single day in Erie County since the start of this pandemic. Erie County Executive Mark Polencars is worried about it, and the governor, what he said he's going to be announcing is a microcluster strategy. He didn't say what the strategy was in his uh, news conference that was held on Friday. He said that he was going to develop the plan over the weekend and then make the announcement on what it is on Monday. There were four areas of western New York that he highlighted in particular that were having problems. That's the city of Buffalo, the town of Tonawanda, the town of Orchard Park, and the town of Hamburg. Those areas have the highest uh, positivity rates, and the governor is going to try to uh, come in, use the microcluster strategy, and what this could mean, and we, we, we don't know exactly what it will be yet, so I just want to say that this is just what it could be. It could mean the result in the closure of some businesses. It might be the closure of some schools, which you think of the school districts uh, that I had mentioned in those towns. That could be affected as well, so that's something that we're going to be keeping an eye on, but we're going to learn more details about that from the governor tomorrow. You know, I, uh, I started my career in radio news many years ago, and I often think about the media scrums that we had where you have a group of reporters gathered around, uh, you know, whoever the interviewee is. And now with COVID and six feet, uh, six foot distancing and so forth, how different is it to cover a story? I, I, you know, we've all seen these long uh, stick mics that you folks are using and uh, everybody wearing masks. Uh, what are the day to day challenges of having to cover newsmakers in a pandemic? 
I don't think it's really been that different. Um, You know, everyone's wearing a mask when they're going out in public. And you see a lot of news reporters, you know, on TV, they're going to have the subject be six feet away. They have a a stick mic that's set up far away. And and it it does kind of look awkward on TV. For our side on the radio, you know, we always try to do our best to just make sure that whoever we're interviewing is comfortable. We're going to be wearing masks as we interview people unless we can keep the social distancing. You know, we, we always try to do it in a way that's just responsible. Um, if, if anything, you know, in a strange way, especially in Buffalo recently, wearing masks has been helping because it's been really cold out. And you, when you're wearing a mask <laughs> and you're doing an interview, it keeps you warm. That, that's something that I've found to be actually kind of enjoyable. Uh, but I mean, you know, you used to work in news, Brenda, so you know, we just we want to be able to do our job as normally as possible. And I'm, I, as well as probably every other news person, is just looking forward to all this being done just so we can kind of interview people normally again. Brendan, you were saying? Yeah, it's actually interesting because, you know, through the duration of the pandemic, it's kind of evolved. You know, at the start, I covered a lot of those press conferences, those daily press conferences that Mayor Byron Brown held at City Hall, and they would literally tape out spots for individual cameras, for individual reporters. They didn't want to see any deviation from the layout that they had set up. It's definitely lacked uh, as the months have progressed. Um, We see more scrums now. Uh, Politicians are more likely to get closer to the cameras. But like Mike said, it's all about their comfortability. You know, there's a lot of uh, asking, uh, is it okay for me to take off my mask? Do you mind? Uh, those kinds of things. I, I just, I think it's important to know, uh, to note, I should say, that everyone is cognizant that we're in a pandemic, and there's definitely an effort made by the media as much as humanly possible to kind of spread out. But sometimes it's just, it's tough. You know, you're in rooms, and as we're getting, as it's getting colder, you, you kind of have to move these press conferences indoors to some to some extent. And when you're in a tight room, it's going to be tight. And so. You know, adherence to masks, I've never seen a problem or an issue with a politician and media and masks. That's just a given. Yeah, you have to wear your mask when you're interviewing someone like that. It's just common sense at this point. Um, But it definitely has lacked from the early days of the pandemic where, you know, city hall officials would literally put tape on the floor. Hey, this is your spot. Don't move. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll be listening for you. Thanks, Hardline crew. Thanks, guys. Thank, thanks, guys. Very much appreciate your insight. Mike Baggerman and Brendan Keeney joining us to wrap up another great, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm the co-host. Another uh, packed episode of Hardline. And Brenda, I don't know what's going to happen this week, but I can tell you next week's going to deliver the exact same. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.